Welcome, listeners, to the Insight Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. I'm David Campbell, and we're starting today a three-part series where we talk about economic development in Atlantic Canada. The first week, this week, we will talk with Stephen Lund about provincial economic development. Next week, we have a conversation about rural economic development with John Bragg. And the third podcast in the series will discuss the urban hubs approach to economic development. So why did we choose Stephen Lund today? Well, Stephen Lund uh, was the former CEO of Nova Scotia Business Inc. for a decade. He also spent six years as the CEO of Opportunities New Brunswick, and now he is the CEO of an economic development organization called Toronto Global. So in many ways, he's uniquely positioned to talk about the role of provincial economic development and the role of government to support economic development around the region. So we had an excellent conversation with Stephen Lund. Yeah, we think that this is a timely and an important subject for Atlantic Canada. If you take a look at our economic performance over the last five decades or so, uh, for the most part, Atlantic Canada has trailed the rest of the country in terms of economic growth consistently year in and year out, but has led the country in unemployment uh, for decades. And so we need to figure out what's working, what's not working. David, as you know, I wrote a column for the daily newspapers in Atlantic Canada this past weekend that really questioned the performance of economic development agencies across this region. And as the column noted, we've got a lot of players. We we have a lot of people involved in economic development at the federal, provincial, and municipal level. And despite all that effort, the, uh, the record has really been mediocre, I think is the best way I could put it, and underwhelming. And the question is, I believe that we're spending at least a billion dollars or more in economic development activities, mostly public, publicly funded, and yet we continue to trail the rest of the country in GDP growth, and our job growth has really been anemic, um, certainly over the last uh, decade or so. So what are we getting for all that money? And, and shouldn't we expect more return on investment for that kind of expenditure? So these, uh, these conversations that we're having, I think, will, uh, will help us to better understand what's working and what's not working. But uh, clearly, from my point of view, the big thing that for those agencies that are doing a, a pretty good job, and there are, there are some examples, the Halifax Partnership, I think, is a good one. You know, I think uh, agencies like ONB have done some good things. Um, uh, you know, NSBI has done some good things. But uh, in the end, it's all about performance metrics and holding these agencies accountable for what they say they're going to do. And uh, in my opinion, there's certainly uh, not enough accountability for performance for these uh, economic agencies and, and probably a, a need for some consolidation of effort because we have so many involved that there's got to be a certain level of duplication of effort and um, and I think that's something that we we really need to talk about in this region it's a, it's a subject that really hasn't been discussed for a very long time so I think uh, I've had the opportunity to work with over two dozen communities in Atlantic Canada on economic development so I have a pretty good vantage point to discuss this I think you're right that there's too many organizations too much duplication federal provincial local, Um, But in a weird way, though, part of the problem is we don't have capacity for economic development in large areas of the region. So what I mean by that is if you go into a place like uh, Grand Falls, New Brunswick, or I don't know, West Prince, Prince Edward Island, there's not a lot of local economic development capacity. There's lots of provincial agencies and federal agencies, but not a lot of ground level, you know, in the community push for economic development. So I'd like to see a bit of a reallocation. I'd like to see more local ownership and control over economic development, although I understand that that's really hard to do when you have very small jurisdictions. So certainly there's lots of work to be done there. The other issue is around performance metrics, and I think that's an issue that animates you, and it's a good issue. But the problem is you're not on the same page with these agencies. So when I talk to Stephen Lund, his view is it's not my job to grow the GDP. The OMB is just a small organization, a $100 million budget. What I can do is 
I can try to attract investment. I can try to help firms grow. I can probably do a little something on the startups, but I can't move a $30 billion economy with, you know, with 120 staff. And my response to Lund would be, but as the lead economic development agency for New Brunswick, you at least need to advise government on how you're going to get back to growth and what needs to happen to get back to growth. And we've been talking about people attraction and other issues. But at the end of the day, that's the response you're going to get from NSBI and any of these agencies is we don't have enough money or resources to actually move an economy. And I'm not sure you agree with that conclusion, but that would be, I mean, Lund says very openly in our conversation that they had record level uh, success, that they led the country uh, in their economic development metrics while he was with ONB. So, but yet, as you said, the overall economy, the overall performance was very, very weak over that same period. So I think it's something we have to discuss and I don't think we've properly aligned the expectations, even ACOA. When I was with the provincial government, I said the same thing to ACOA. I said, aren't you worried about the fact that the economy's not growing at all? And they were like, well, but the companies we work with are growing. And the little kitty of firms we work with are growing. So everybody kind of retrenches to, you know, their own little part of the schoolyard and nobody really worries that the school's burning down. So anyway, I think you're, you're right to discuss this. I think we need to discuss it. I think the three conversations we have over the next three weeks are going to be very helpful. But I think fundamentally, we need to actually be having the same conversation. And right now, I'm not sure we are. Well, I think you make a good point. Everybody uh, who's in economic development can point to <clears throat> things that they're doing that are positive. And I, I, for the most part, agree that the things that they do are positive. But it's but on the whole, if you're not growing your economy as quickly as the rest of the country, you're not you're not you're not helping. All, all we're doing is treading water, and in fact, treading water at 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 a, at a level that gets worse every every year and harder every year. And so maybe we need we need to kind of have a come to Jesus moment where we look at all economic development activities and we start to figure out a way to coordinate the efforts and have a similar goals, regardless of where you are in the region or in the province, and, and understand what you need to be successful from an economic development um, situation. You know, as I mentioned in, in the previous uh, episodes, I, I had a chance to do a growth uh, strategy um, report for the city of St. John. And one of the things that is clear is that we have examples of good community development in this region. We have places like Charlottetown and Moncton and Halifax that are doing, you know, certain things that are making a difference. And so we need to learn from those success stories. And, and I think the strategies that are being used by those three pretty successful urban communities can be translated to most communities of a reasonable size. And, you know, in Atlantic Canada, we have something in the order of almost 30 what I would call small urban areas that can replicate the kinds of things that these three larger urban areas are doing and find success. And, you know, what are they? Um, well, there, there's, there's a couple of common, common things that, that I've seen. One is that you have to have a strategy to begin with. <laughs> you know, you've got to figure out where your asset base uh, lies in the community and take advantage of and leverage that asset base. You need to have certainly a population growth strategy um, I've been putting out uh, some data on population trends across the, the region. And, um, and, and what they show is that a lot of communities are shrinking quickly. And, uh, you know, it's not a, not a recipe for success if you're losing population, obviously. And the, the second thing that is common most of those, in those communities is that they really focus on uh, downtown, their downtown cores, strengthening their downtown cores, uh, repopulating them, densifying them, uh, drawing people back to the urban uh, centers. And when you have a strong urban center of a community, you're going to have a stronger community. That's just the way it works. So there's some commonalities of success that I think other communities would have uh, an opportunity to replicate and, and, and be successful, no matter how big they are. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, unfortunately, now it's more complex than it was 10 years ago, because now we have to think about a lot more about people attraction into these smaller urban hubs uh, and even things like housing. As you know, we're starting to see shortages of housing 
and an aging construction workforce. So we've layered complexity upon complexity here, but that doesn't mean we can't get busy around the region and get things done from Corner Brook to, you know, to Edmonston. So I think that's absolutely right. You know, one of our one of our objectives, as people have probably heard us say already, is that we want to provide data that informs decision making and and look for best practices uh, within our region to uh, learn from and to share with other parts of Atlantic Canada uh, so that they can, you know, get a shortcut to being more successful. And, you know, these are these are why we're conducting the kind of conversations that we are. And now my conversation with Stephen Lund, CEO of Toronto Global and former CEO of Nova Scotia Business Inc. and Opportunities New Brunswick. Enjoy. Stephen Lund, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thank you, David. My pleasure to be here. So it's great to be here, Stephen. Uh, haven't talked to you in a while. It'll be great to get caught up in what you're doing now, but we really want to focus on on the your observations over the last uh, basically 20 years in economic development. But before we do that, why don't you give the audience a little thumbnail sketch of your career? Uh, thanks, David. Sure. Uh, grew up in uh, St. John, New Brunswick, uh, then uh, St. Avax, Queens, Toronto, came here and uh, did kind of the banking, Bay Street banking world. Then I uh, met my wife, got married, and we moved to Bermuda for five years, uh, and I was in offshore banking. Uh, then from there to Halifax uh, in venture capital, and then in 2001, I was recruited to go to this new group called Nova, called Nova Scotia Business Inc. And, uh, you know, to uh, uh, much of the amazement of some of my friends who said, you're crazy. You know, there's been like 13 changes in 15 years to economic development. What are you doing? So I went in as the first CEO, um, private sector board, uh, was there for 12 years, essentially. Uh, and then five years as the CEO of Opportunities in Brunswick and the deputy minister. And then, uh, and then I made the amazing decision of come to Toronto in the middle of a pandemic. And so I, I moved here in September. And uh, as we speak, I'm on the 19th floor of an apartment building, which is my office and my home, because I really can't do much in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but I'm in the same boat as everybody else. And I've learned to live with the world of Zoom. So uh, here we are. <laughs> mm, economic development in the world of Zoom. Exactly. Um, so I'm, when we get a little bit later on, I want to ask you a little bit about what you're doing now. I think that's sure. very exciting. But I wanted to start our questions today uh, by asking you just in general, you are the only person to have led both NSBI and Opportunities New Brunswick. You've seen the vantage, you had the vantage point of both of those organizations. Um, you've been around roughly 20 years in economic development since 2001. So I wanted to ask you just in general, what do you think has changed since you started in 2001? Or what has changed in economic development? Sure. Uh, I think one of the big things is uh, just the impact of social media and the internet um, and the way business is done these days from both perspectives. If you're in the economic development field, uh, reaching out to contacts, uh, I mean, we're doing it now in this in this Zoom world, but even before that, uh, it played a big role. It also plays a big role in getting the word out. But what you do, but and also from the client perspective, you know, if you're sitting in New York and somebody calls you from Moncton, well, you can quickly Google and figure out where Moncton is, and you know, and who's David Campbell, and and uh, so that is a big change. I think the other change. Uh, is, is probably a more competitive world these days because I think jurisdictions recognize the importance of growing an economy and, they, and they're focused on it. You know, I think immigration is playing such a big role. And I know you talked to Jim Irving about it and I listened to that podcast, but I think there's, there's, a, there's more of a recognition of the importance of immigration to economic development and the linkage and also the linkage between attracting business and growing uh, and supporting local businesses. It's not universal, uh, you know, I think there's still challenges in some areas about recognizing that, but I think in general, we're seeing that. And, and you know, I think if you listen to uh, the State of the Union the other night, 
with President Biden, it was all about, you know, jobs, 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 green jobs, any jobs, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's, I think it's a recognition that just, just how important it is to, to really focus on the economy these days. But why do you think, uh, regarding Joe Biden, why do you think jobs are such a, a big deal? I mean, you have record low unemployment. Obviously, we've got <clears throat> some current challenges with COVID-19. But pre-COVID-19, you had record low unemployment in the U.S., very low unemployment here. I thought things would move away from jobs. But do you think it's just sort of a universal thing for politicians to be talking about the need for more jobs, jobs, jobs? No, uh, there's some merit in that. Um, you know, there was a report the other day that said if the U.S. is going to maintain the same standard of living 50 years from now, they have to triple in size. And, you know, there's a there's a group in Canada called uh, the Century Initiative that thinks the same thing. Um, you know, if you're if you're going to grow your economy and, 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 you know, and survive as a jurisdiction, jobs is only one component of it. But, you know, think about it, the linkage with immigration. Um, if you're going to attract immigrants, then you better have a job for them. Uh, and so, you know, when you say jobs, 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 it's it's we're getting older. We're not we're not having the same amount of babies before, uh, you know. Our populations have to grow, and part of that, you know, is jobs. And you know, I think what you're going to see is, um, you know, maybe a different approach to jobs. And you're going to hear more about green jobs and high end jobs and that kind of thing. But uh, you know, it's never going to go away from the lips of a politician, or uh, it's never going to go away completely for you know for most jurisdictions. But you talked earlier about immigration, and so I, that brings me to my next question about the value proposition. It's my mm. I, I've been around since the '90s doing this, yeah, and you've been we used to position New Brunswick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we were on. always in those early days. Yeah. We were, <laughs> but we were pitching the fact that we had surplus labor, that we had all mm. kinds of talent, and and the idea was move here because we have lots of of people. So. Um, how how else has the value proposition changed? Like what? Sure. I mean, you were in the sales business. You were known, you know, as a sales guy, a hustle guy. Like, get out there and sell. What are you actually selling? When you look at Atlantic Canada today, in, in particular, what are, what are we selling today uh, from an economic development perspective? Sure. If if you'll humor me, I'll tell you a little story that'll sort of uh, showcase this. Uh, back in two thousand and seven, I think it was. You know, we had decided that uh, when I was at Nova Scotia Business Inc., that, um, you know, that, that we saw what was happening in places like Bermuda, where I had come from, and other places in the work and financial services. And we thought, hmm, like, why couldn't we do it here? Like, we've got a good skill set. There was an accounting link between Halifax and Bermuda. And so we started to inquire and, and hopped on a plane, went to Bermuda, went to New York. We were able to convince an executive from Citgo to come to Halifax and kick the tires. And Sicko then and still is today, the biggest hedge fund and men company in the world with you know 40 places around the world. So uh, so this guy came, Bobby, um, came to Halifax. We spent two days, we you know did the song and dance and introduced him to all the accountants and lawyers and some of the politicians. And after two days when he was leaving, you know, he looked at me and said, uh, Stephen, like, why would anybody come to Halifax? It's a dead city. Like, there's not a crane in the city. And I thought, wow. And, like, he was saying this. And at that point, we were basically telling taxi drivers not to go near Barrington Street because we called it Mini Beirut. Looked like a war zone. So fast forward today, Halifax is a, is a dynamic city, uh, attracting young people, immigrants, businesses. Um, so what happened between then and now? So... He was right in terms of there wasn't a crane. There hadn't been a crane in Halifax in 18 years. The last one was building priorities. So a number of things happened. First, um, and not in any particular order, sorry. It's then, you know, we we were able to attract all these companies, financial services companies, IT companies, insurance, digital media, aerospace and defense to really put Halifax on the map. That was one. Um, Halifax by design, which which basically said you can now build a building higher than your kneecaps. Um, and that was a big battle, as you remember, probably being Halifax and Moncton having all of this discussion years ago. That was important. 
Uh, shipbuilding contract came along, which was which was great. Another thing that doesn't get as much recognition is pre-clearance at the airport. You know, flying into U.S. and getting cleared—that was a big thing. And then you saw, you know, the, uh, all the startups to come. You saw the Volta Labs, the CDL. You saw the ocean industry take 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 uh, explode a bit. So all these things came together. And if you look at Halifax now, you know, led by you know great mayor Mike Savage. Um, it's an exciting place. I've always said it's one of the best cities in the world to live in, and and you saw the McLean stuff. So, so from a value perspective, if you're an, if you're a company looking at Halifax, you look at growth, you look at young people, immigration, and you look at all the companies. If I'm in the IT world, you know, in Silicon Valley, I look and I say, well, geez, IBM has a 700 person operation there. That's probably got 300 immigrants and, and, and young kids working. Maybe I should look at that. So, so the value proposition for a place like Halifax has really changed over the years. And, and you know, to some extent, you could say that to any of the major cities in Atlanta, Canada. So instead of sort of cheap costs and, and lots of surplus labor, you're almost promoting, if I hear you correctly, you're almost promoting this sort of vision of a dynamic business environment where companies in in certain industries like tech should want to be in a place like Halifax. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. But, uh, you know, um, make no mistake, the number one driver in the world today is talent, right? They're, they're, they're really, I, w- I went to New York um, in one of my trips and I had a meeting with a CEO in, in a lunch place downtown New York. And I was sitting here, this guy walks in and rough New York accent. Before he sat down, he goes, Lund, answer me three things. Uh, okay. Skill, scale, and cost. And I thought, what's he talking about? So what he's talking about was skill. I need good people, scale. I need enough of them, cost. I need a reasonable cost of business. You know, that stuck with me for the last 15 years or whatever it is. It hasn't changed, although the magnitude has changed in terms of talent. For 90% of, of companies... It's all about talent. If you're looking for something in the ground, it's different. But, but you need to get good people, um, and that's really the key. And so, I keep going back to you, David. There's an underlying theme today that wasn't there 20 years ago. It's immigration, right? How important it is. And you know, companies are looking for. You need to tell me if if I'm going to set up an operation and hire 100 IT people, I need to get them. What are your universities like? What are your community colleges like? What's your immigration uh, program like? How am I going to get people to come back? You know, that's, it's so critical. And I think, you know, look at TD and Moncton and their ability to, you know, bring people back from across the country that, that were TD workers that wanted to come home or to move to Moncton. And look at all, there was something like, the last time I went through there, there was something like 30 different nationalities in that building. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's incredible to see. That is impressive. So I guess what you're saying is that, that, the talent pipeline now is even more important than a low cost or a cheap cost environment. I look at I've I've never been able, I've never said there was a cheap cost. That's the last thing I would say. Um, you know, I think all all I would say is you know is it's a reasonable cost of business, um, okay. and we could show people that that we could that it's cheaper to you know it's it's cheaper to set up in Moncton or. St. John or Fredericton than Toronto or New York or California, but there's always somebody cheaper than you. And so you got to be careful with that. Um, you, you need to be able to show them the savings, but, you know, but attracting a business is, is 50% what you're selling and 50% how you sell it. Right. And so, you know, um, you know, we often, we often talk about the value proposition, but, you know, when I was in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick and both NSBI and ONB, you know, more than half of what we did was basically working with local companies. It wasn't attracting it, just that that's what gets you the headlines. You know, you know the other thing, David, you know, you'll know this around, you know, you hear this, well, you know, we just need to, you know, create the conditions. And if we had a lower tax rate, you know, people would flood in, right? Well, you know, it's like, Give me a pair of skates and I'm an NHL hockey player. Like that's corporate, corporate taxes is is for most companies down the list 
wait around, you know, am I going to be able to get my haircut if I move there? Like it's not, it's not, it's people don't ask about corporate taxes these days. Yeah. I would say that's one of the most misunderstood parts of this business, right? Is that, is that a lot of these companies, the national and international companies, the actual tax bill they face when they come to a place like Moncton or Fredericton or Halifax Mm. is quite low because you pay your corporate income tax where you pay your corporate income tax has a lot to do with where you're domiciled, where your business is and so on. So you'll pay property tax here and you'll pay probably Mm -hmm. some other tax, but I agree with you to offer a low corporate income tax rate to a multinational, um, unless they have lots of markets and activity, it's, it's, it's not really much of a selling feature. So it's, it's very interesting how that has been a a, a driver for so many years, a misunderstood. It's a misunderstood driver. I think I, I, I was trying to think, I think I've been asked once in 20 years what our corporate tax rate is. I'm not even sure what it is, quite honest. It's, it's just, it's not a topic. Yeah, because if you're, if you're located in Halifax mm-hmm. and 100% of your business is in Nova Scotia, then obviously you're you very concerned about that rate because that's 100% of what you're going to pay. No question. All of, your, all of your taxes are going to be paid in Nova Scotia. But if you're a national no or international firm, yeah. The amount of property or income yeah. tax you pay in Nova Scotia will be marginal. So that's yeah, that's no, really saying, right. No, you're right. I'm not saying it's not important to local companies. It absolutely is. I'm just saying if you're, you know, an international company looking to set up in, you know, uh, Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, they're not going to ask you what your tax rate is. You know, I think a huge advantage uh, to that uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia both have is, you know, first of all. You know, it's difficult to get a company to come to a place um, that they don't know. Uh, Toronto is Toronto. It's, you know, it's well known around the world, but nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, you know, if you're in New York, we should go to Moncton. Like of all the deals that we brought to uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, you know, 95% came from someone knocking on a door. So, so when you convince the company to come, you, you kind of have them for a day or two. You know, we started this, concept in uh, in Nova Scotia when we first were going after research in motion years ago at BlackBerry. Uh, you know, it's like a team Nova Scotia approach or a team New Brunswick approach. Is when you get a company in, you get them for two days. You better be the best in the world at what you do because you're gonna get that one shot to convince them, right? And that was a huge advantage. Um, you know, we, when you spend two days with somebody and you get to know them and, and uh, you know, the, the, the hospitality showed, you know, by people in, in both provinces is second to none in the world. And so it was a huge selling feature, you know, for us. It allowed us to compete with any jurisdiction in the world. And, you know, and we we very rarely lost any deals. Um, we lose a lot that we don't know about. But, you know, our goal was to get someone to come and kick the tires. We knew that we had a darn good chance of getting the business if we got if we were able to do that. So a big part of the value of the proposition was then just how you sell or the people that are you engage in that sales process. Exactly. It's, it is, it is so critical. I mean, it's such a, it's such a cluttered space, economic development these days, you know, there are 14,000 of these organizations in North America alone. So you better be good at what you do because everyone's going to say, Oh, we got people and we're a low cost of business. And so you better know how to convince them that, that, you know, you've got the best place to set up uh, and you need the right people and you need the right uh, system and you need the right support group and you need, you know, you need, you know, I, I just mentioned, I just got off the phone with uh, Mayor Tory. He's, he's an amazing sales guy um, talking to a company in Silicon Valley. So you mean you need that support network around. So uh, you're a big proponent of, foreign direct investment or attracting investment from national or international firms. There's always been a debate about how much focus you should put on that versus growth from within. Do you think there's still, uh, particularly in the case of Atlanta, Canada, should we still be focused on trying to attract firms and investment here? Like uh, Walmart just announced a big investment in a warehouse, $56 million investment here in Moncton, or should we be focused more on trying to grow uh, the existing businesses that are already here? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, um, I'm not sure Walmart would be at the top of the list, um, uh, but um, it's you know, like it's still a good deal. Uh, it's not one or the other, and it's never been one or the other. Um, let me start by saying, you know, 
if jurisdictions like New Brunswick and Nova Scotia think they're going to grow without attracting new investment, you know, they're wrong. You know, they'll be dead in the water. But having said that, you know, I look at four legs of the stool and, 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 I, and I know you know this as well as anybody, but there are really four things that, that really drive economic growth. And one is, um, you know, productivity. Um, you know, investing in people and equipment and that kind of stuff. Um, productivity is really critical. Um, exports, you know, um, increasing exports. We have 800 exporters in New Brunswick. That hasn't changed much in 20 years, but but only 3% of our companies export. So that's a challenge. Entrepreneurship. You know, I think we've done a good job in uh, in the last, you know, eight or 10 years in, in, in helping startups grow. So we're Good at startups, we're not good at scale-ups. Uh, we need a lot of work on that. So our productivity, exports, and entrepreneurship all deal with local companies. And the fourth one is investment. They're all critical. I, I would say you need to, to you need to focus on all four because if you take one away, you've got a wobbly stool. So, and I know you know this whole argument um, about investment. You know, it's I just look at places around the world. Um, you know, the, the, one of the fastest growing economies in the last few years is Ireland. You know, it's it's all driven by foreign direct investment. Even Israel, which people talk about as, you know, the startup uh, country, which which it is, you know, they've got 252 international R&D centers. Intel has 10,000 people there. So they've it's a combination of, of international uh, and small, small. Canada itself, lags the U.S. in productivity. And one of the big reasons is we don't have enough big companies. That, I mean, that's that's one of the big reasons. Like, you know, bigger companies pay more, invest more, do more R&D. But also, you know, there's this linkage between big and small. And you see it in, in Dieppe, Moncton with TD Bank. I mean, how many, you know, a thousand employees, how many small businesses are servicing that operation? Or, or even look at the, you know, some of the Irving operations and how many small businesses serve them. So, yeah. So I would say, David, it's not a matter of one or the other. It's a conceptual thing on whether you accept the notion of having to grow. That's that's what it comes down to in my mind. You know, one of the things that's always bugged me a bit is that I think part of it is the fact that a lot of people in this region are not confident in their economy. In other words, they will say, why would IBM want to ever invest in Atlantic Canada or why would company X or Y? And I mean, you've heard that. So, right. Yeah. So, well, we may as well just focus on our own because at least they're here and they know us yeah. and they like us. So that kind of mentality should be the opposite. Right. And I think you would, we'd be the first to say that, that, well, why wouldn't they want to invest here? We need some swagger in, you know, in the region, you know, like we, you know, like we had the best results in Canada in my last year at opportunities in New Brunswick. Right. You know, if we were a hockey team, we'd be in the front page of the pages, front page of the paper. Hey, you know, best in the country. But, oh, economic development, like, oh, why would I be? In, like, oh, you must be giving them lots of money. You know, like, <laughs> it boggles my mind. You know, I, I'll tell you another uh, little thing that you'll find interest because you were part of this. You know, I hear this, you know, these people say, oh, well, you know, why would a company come here or, Oh, why would we give money to companies? They come here and they leave when the money runs out. Well, I went back and looked, and I looked at all the companies that went to New Brunswick in the last 10 years. I found one company out of the hundreds that left at the end of, of, of uh, an incentive. Can you imagine that? One. And here's another story that, that uh, again, you'll appreciate. I went back in 2000, no, 1999, 1988. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But I looked at a bunch of companies that came during Frank's era and your era, ExxonMobil, IBM, UPS, uh, RBC, and, and one other. And I went and looked at all the papers, the headlines, and I looked, I looked at the announcements, and I counted up all the jobs, and it was 1,900 jobs in total that they were going to create. Fast forward a year ago when I looked at it, not only did they have 1,900, they had 3,600 people there. And they put over $2 billion into the economy of New Brunswick. Think about that. It's, it's an amazing number. It's like when I told, you know, when Frank McKenna, when we you know, did the TD deal and we talked about, you know, um, at OMB, we gave them an incentive. 
Oh, corporate welfare, what are you giving to the money big bank for? I said, well, Frank, in the next 10 years, you know, we're gonna collect over $200 million in provincial taxes from TD. So thank you very much. You know, they, they, so the question is, you know, the question is really is it's it's the return and and you know and and why would they can we compete? Well we've already proven that. You know, like again, I go back to that question of swagger. Like, you know, there are good people in Atlanta, Canada, as good as any any place anywhere else. Right? Yeah. So we just we need a bit of swagger. I still remember the UPS, they were because they were so large, I think they announced they came here with a trial run and then they announced they were gonna put all of their national back offices, uh, consolidate them in New Brunswick. I think it was about a thousand jobs or 900 or a thousand jobs. And the headline was, yeah, it was something like McKenna gives national corporation $10 million. That was the, that was the, not the thousand jobs. It was the $10 million. Yeah. Uh, but I just, just yeah. so that our listeners understand here that I, I, maybe you could talk a little bit about the fact that other jurisdictions are in the game of providing incentives. So it's not like, you know, it's not like you're doing this in a vacuum. It's part of the competitive reality that you face as an economic development. It, uh, it, the world has moved on. The, the world has moved on from incentives. They accept incentives. Every single jurisdiction, every single state in the U.S. offers a lot of incentives, right? New Brunswick, the last analysis done by the Fraser Institute showed that New Brunswick offered the lowest incentives in the country. But But you have to, but when you talk about incentives, it's really an incentive to a company to set up. The real question is not, you know, are you offering incentives? The question is, is there, are you getting a strong return on investment? Every deal we did in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, we got a strong return on investment. We made way more money than we paid out, right? That's really the question, right? If you're going to generate jobs, in, uh, uh, you know, investment, attract immigrants, and you're making money on it, you know, like that's that's the goal. I mean, you got to get away from this, you know, talk about you know corporate welfare. It's you know, it's it's going to hold the region back. So I'm glad you indicated or, or reminded us that most of those firms, if not all of them, stayed well beyond their incentive period because I think that is the other misconception, and that is that the incentive itself was some sort of structural subsidy that dropped the company's costs so low. That right. that they you know that they had this advantage, and when the t when the subsidy went away, that that advantage disappeared. But I think my research would suggest that over say a ten year period, that initial upfront subsidy might have been worth one or two percent, maybe three at the top end of the total costs over a ten year period, which is certainly mm -hmm. not going to be enough. It's enough to sort of help incentivize them to come and move here or expand here, and also make some of those initial upfront yeah. training investments and so on. But it's not some kind of a structural subsidy. No, it should never be. And I, and I can remember, I learned a lesson. Um, I was in uh, North Carolina, Greenboro at the head office of Michelin years ago. And I remember the CEO going up to a board. I, I, can, I had this vision like it was yesterday. And he looked at it and he said, this is what we look at when we're looking to set up an operation around the world. Uh, you know, uh, people, infrastructure, I don't remember the third one, but the fourth one was incentives. And what he said was, he says, I don't, we don't need to have the most incentives, right? All I want to see is that the jurisdiction I'm talking to is willing to partner with me and has some incentives on the table. And that's the view that I've always taken. I just want to be in the game. I just want to be at the table because I can win it, you know, everything else. And that's why incentives it's almost like a necessary evil. Like, you know, it's these days, it's, 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 it's part of the game, right? And jurisdictions want to compete, you have to be at the table. Looking back on your 15, 16 years at NSBI and ONB, can you tell us a couple of sector development uh, efforts that you're most proud of? In other words, industries or opportunities that, uh, that stand out in your mind as, as examples of success? Uh, sure. I mean, success, um, I mean, they're really most successful is just um, having a great team. And again, when I mentioned to you when I started in SBI and 13 changes in 15 years, and SBI is going into the 20th year um, strong. It's I'm really proud of that. If I look at, I must have to look at cities, David. Like in Halifax, 
you know, financial services, we started from scratch. Nobody knew anything about hedge fund administration. We grew it, um, became the fastest growing place in Canada. You know, we had one point, we had 800 people part of our financial services association. You know, we rang the bell in the New York Stock Exchange celebrating financial services. The only province or state to ever do that. Um, and then, of course, IT and what we do with IBM and that. Uh, if I look in New Brunswick, in Fredericton, cybersecurity, you know, creating cyber and being, attracting all the companies uh, and seeing all the startups in cybersecurity. In St. John, you know, the digital health work we did that hopefully will come to fruition in the next couple of years, creating a digital health park. And then Moncton, I think, well, I, we talked about TD Bank, but I think our India strategy has been, has been uh, you know, a big home run for us. You know, attracting Indian companies through what we call the lift and shift strategy. So, you know, set up HCL, Tech Mahindra, um, of those companies, but bring in workers. So it's a, it's a ready-made immigration strategy. You're bringing in workers and their families. They're making good money. They set up a community. So it, it was, you know, it was a huge win for us, um, you know, with a lot of uh, potential. And unfortunately, India is going through challenges now. Uh, you know, if you feel our heart goes out to them. Um, but eventually, India will, you know, will look to Canada as a great alternative to the U.S. And I think we should talk about the U.S. when you get a chance to either. But um, yeah, but those are the, I think, the key sectors. So tell us a little bit about lift and shift. So that's the idea that you're not only bringing the company, but they're bringing at least some of their workforce with them. Yeah, it's uh, to me, it's a perfect way to, to tie in immigration and investment. If you look at Moncton today and you well, you're, you live there, but um, you look at the impact of TD and, and, and you look at the Indian companies are setting up and you look at the new fancy cars going up. You look at the houses being bought. In fact, the irony is, is now now they talk about affordable housing. We don't have enough housing in Moncton, right? As a result of some of this, um, but again, it's these are all these are all critical things. But at the same time, you know, we have to acknowledge also that there's some really cool things happening with our local companies, and, and which is exciting, uh, and seeing some of that growth and contributing to to growth and, and some of the startups. If you look at uh, some of the startups around the region and and how they're now bringing on immigrants. Um, I think it's, little, it's slowly changing that whole concept. And I know you've done a lot of work in that area. And I and I was listening to some of your numbers uh, when you talked with Jim Irving. It's not universally accepted. I mean, I live in a city where now, <laughs> um, where 51% of the people that live here were not born here. So, I mean, we don't think about immigration. It's just, uh, of course. Yeah, it's just embedded in the fabric. Um, I have, I've actually evolved on this issue of startups. I when when I started in economic development, I was far more an FDI guy. It seemed to me, if you had a million dollars to spend and you could spend that million to attract a national firm and five million dollars a year in export revenue, it seemed to me it would take you know you'd have to somehow find fifty startups with X amount of revenue to actually match that one investment project or even a mining project, right? The Sisson mine, that project that's been sort of floating mm -hmm. around, you know, it's supposed to be a $300 million project. How many startups to get to that level of output or that level of GDP? But I have evolved. I do, you know, because we have seen some scale-ups, we have seen a lot of firms actually break out and go national and international. I have evolved and I am now a bigger fan of startups, but I always wonder what's that mix. If you had, mm. if you had a million dollars to spend and you were true, you were forced to choose between pumping it into a bunch of startups or attracting a national firm. I'm not necessarily going to ask you to answer that question unless you want to. I, I'm not even sure how I would answer that. I think both, as you said earlier, mm. uh, hold their advantages and, and disadvantages too. Yeah. yeah it's uh, it's a tough question because they're so they're, they're both so important and i think um you know if you look at if you look at the startup scene in atlanta canada you know it's come a long way but it's still relatively small david it, it, it's not enough in its in itself to to grow the economy really important and we need to focus on it i think we really have to take a look at scale-ups because we don't have enough companies really reaching a critical stage right so and also don't forget that 
you know, with Research in Motion in Halifax and Halifax and IBM, a lot of the startups that are, are founders that came from these organizations. So there is there is a strong linkage there. I want to ask you about foreign direct investment via acquisition. So when Salesforce.com uh, bought out uh, Radiant Six, one of a senior government official that I knew actually said, you know, he, he thought it was a bad thing that we lost the control, we lost the head office, you know, yeah. that the company would just come in here and sort of slowly cl close the office. And I said, well, what about the three hundred million dollars or whatever in investment? And if you look at Verifin in Newfoundland, a lot of the big foreign direct investment projects now, particularly in the tech sector, are coming via acquisition. Do you think that's that's that seems to me a fairly new trend in the last 10 years or so? And what do you think? Is that just I mean, if you think about Google investing in Waterloo, I mean, you're, mm. you're in the center of it in Toronto, right? Do you think uh, uh, F investment via acquisition is a good thing for smaller uh, urban centers and, and small provinces or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing on average. Um, I think what the uh, what the issue seems to be these days is the fear of IP uh, companies coming in and swallowing up all the IT IP, which is it is a concern. Uh, you know, I think uh, if a company comes in and you know buys and buys a local company and leaves and takes all the employees, it's it's it can be considered a negative. But I think what's happening is, is they're coming in, they're recognizing the talent, and they're buying out some local entrepreneurs that then have that money to go invest in startups, but they see the talent and they're keeping the talent. And Verifin is a good example of that. So I think, you know, I, I think overall, it's a good thing. And I think, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing companies do that, stay and set up and stay. That's, that's what we're seeing these days. So I wanted to shift a little bit here to in, in the next few minutes we have left to what you think particularly Atlantic Canada should be doing when it comes to economic development. There's still a lot of negativity around. There are still politicians that call for economic development organizations to be shut down or radically retooled. Um, you know, there's there's people that say we should just move all of our effort into people attraction and not do anything on the investment side that that'll take care of itself. And there's a general skepticism. And I know that frustrates you. I mean, you and I have talked about that in the past, but there's a general skepticism that you you really can't sort of force uh, economic growth just through a little bit of government intervention or sales or, or efforts to intervene in the economy. Yeah. Um, so the, I guess there's a two-part question. The first part is, what do you think we need to change? So you've been here 20 years, almost 20 years, mm -hmm. you were, before you moved on to Toronto. Are there things looking back, like right now, if you were advising government, what would you tell them to change in terms of their approach to economic development, if anything? Well, um, if you put all your money in attracting people, you're going to have a lot of unhappy people that aren't working. Right. So, you know, I mean, if you bring people in and just take the jobs when people retire, succession planning, then you're only going to get your economy back up to a certain level. You're not going to get it to the next level. You know, um, Looking forward, um, you know, there are going to be challenges uh, in terms of, you know, if, if, if we're keeping, if we're not going to grow, we're going to shrink. And, you know, the article in the Financial Post today talked about Atlanta, Canada, a wash in federal money. And, you know, we're, that might not continue. And people are going to retire. We're going to need more people. We're not producing, you know, as many babies. But, you know, if I'm going to look at, First of all, if you didn't have an economic de development agency, you have to create one for a number of reasons. One, you know, we need to increase exports. And, you know, so if you don't have an organization helping exporters, then you're going to say to the, these companies, OK, you guys, you're on your own. You all individually book your trips to go to India and or whatever it is in the world. Uh, you're going to find that they all get a value in working together and someone has to organize that. You're not going to attract investment by just, you know, sitting back and waiting for the phone to ring, it's not going to happen. And, you know, um, lowering, as we talked about, corporate taxes is not going to work. So the question is really is, do you want to grow? New Brunswick and Nova Scotia are either going to be exciting pro-growth areas or they're going to be known as retirement zones. One or the other, you pick. If you want to grow, you got to take a growth 
pro-growth attitude. You, you've got to get some swagger. You know, you've got to look at, um, you know, the, really the two key things I'll talk, I talk about immigration and investment. Um, but, uh, but I understand the, the questions around, and unfortunately, a lot of it's culture. You know, David, as you know, um, it's, there's a lot of myths in economic development. You know, there, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people in the space. It's too crowded. They're not all effective. I get it. I agree with that. But you can't just say blanketly, we don't need them. I know you talk about a lot of local economic development groups doing things, taking more on. Totally agree with you. But you're going to need a central function to do things like export and investment and even finance. I mean, the Crown Court model I obviously seems to be the best model. But to me, it comes down to either taking a pro-growth attitude or not and being really aggressive and having some swagger. You got We have to get over the the, the negativity. Uh, you know, the the media has not been a friend of promoting business, right? And you know, thank God for podcasts like you're doing and people like James Mullinger, people uh, things like Huddle, all Nova Scotia. I think that medium is really helping to get the story out that we can compete with any place in the world and not be stuck on small mindedness that we often we often go to, you know and you know, it was funny, are you talking about Brooklyn the other day? I was thinking of, you know, you could talk to five people today about economic development and four of them would say, great, all those new companies here are amazing. The startups are amazing. And, you know, we should go out and attract some more big businesses. Then someone's going to say, oh, well, look what happened to Brooklyn, <laughs> you know, 45 years ago or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. It's like saying, you know, the four people are saying, oh, that Crosby is such a great hockey player. And then someone says, oh, no, he's not good. I remember that open net he missed five years ago. Like, <laughs> that's what it's like. Yeah. yeah, I had that feeling interviewing uh, Bricklin that, that, you know. It's, uh, yeah, was that good? Yeah, it was. It'll be out next week. So, um, yeah. um, so uh, I – won't go into them all, but I actually have a lot of Stephen Lund stories. So maybe maybe <laughs> one day we'll have you back and we'll just go through the Stephen Lund stories. But one <laughs> of the Stephen Lund stories that I find very interesting, and it's it's going to be part two to my question about what should government do. Uh, I did the an economic development strategy in Digby, Nova Scotia a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago or something. And um, we went down there, me and the, 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 the consultant that I was working with, we went down there and they, we went in a room and they said, look, Stephen Lund came in here and he made a speech and we asked him why he's not giving more, putting more companies in Digby. And they said, and Lund looked right at us and says, you got nothing to sell down here. I got nothing. I can't sell anything down here. You got to give me something to sell. Now, I don't know if this is apocryphal, if this actually happened, maybe it did or it didn't, or maybe it happened. I'm sure you spoke down there, but maybe that, maybe they, that was their interpretation. Mm -hmm. But they basically said, you came down there and said, look, I, I, I'm selling Nova Scotia, I'm selling my best assets, and you've got to give me something to sell. So the part two of the question here is, what do you do with Digby? What do you do with Miramichi? What do you do with Bathurst and Edmonston and, you know, Summerside? Yeah. Like, I understand that there's, you, you put your yeah. resources and your focus where your best assets are, but you still have a lot of smaller communities in rural areas across Atlantic Canada. And if you could mm -hmm. wave your magic wand, what would you do? To ensure that these areas grow, or maybe you don't want them to grow. So, what what are your what are what are your thoughts on rural and small small uh, small um, urban or small rural areas? Yeah. That kind of no, it's a great question. I, I I don't remember that speech. I'm not I'm not doubting it, but um, but I'm in Toronto now, David. I have 24 municipalities that I represent, right? And you know they all want deals in their area, right? I mean that's just the way it goes. I think. Yeah, in Nova Scotia, I know Don Mills talks about creating these city, you know, these six or eight major cities and feeding into them. And, you know, when I was in at OMB in New Brunswick, like, like we worked with a thousand companies across the area. You know, we're not going to bring in IBM and 700 people into, into DB. It's not going to happen. But here's an idea that I got the other day from Ireland. So to me, Ireland's always been the model for economic development. Um, you know, 20 years ago, Ireland was at, sorry, Ireland had a lower GDP per capita uh, standard of living than Canada. Today, the GDP per capita in Canada is about 65,000. Ireland's 100,000. I mean, it's it's um, 
it's mind boggling. And they built that economy on attracting investment, right? That's what they did. So what, what Ireland said the other day was, okay, we've got Dublin, which is a center for financial services and life sciences and blah, blah, blah. We're going to create 400 um, pods across the country that are focused on work from home. So, so we're going to go into Digby. We're going to take over a school. This is going to be a work from home center. So, so the 50 people in Digby and the 100 people that in Toronto that might want to move to Digby could live in Digby and walk across the street into these work from home areas. We're going to have internet connections and all that stuff. And I thought that that was an amazing idea. And so when I look at the communities, I would be jumping all over that and say, hey, as long as we have internet, that's another thing we can think you have to make sure you have internet. It's Digby or any place like that should be pitching, you know, work from home, but we're actually going to help build the cluster around work from home with internet, having a work from home space. So it's not in people's houses. That I thought that was a brilliant idea that I'd be all over <laughs> if I was there. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I there was another example that I saw not that long ago in in England where they were looking at st extending the construction sector outside of the periphery of Greater London. So actually have a lot of construction components built in smaller communities mm -hmm. and have them shipped into the city for for assembly. Um, so I think there are ways to do that. I think that's that's very interesting that the Dublin example, I think, in the Ireland example, mm -hmm. just on Ireland is very interesting. Malcolm, Malcolm Brickland told us that he was they were recruiting him heavily uh, to, to move his initially to put his factory in uh, mm -hmm. in oh, wow. in Ireland. And apparently DeLorean, his uh, his competition there at that time did did that actually put their first factory mm -hmm. in in uh, in Ireland. That's so that's interesting. They've been hustling. I think the, I think in the fifties and sixties is when Ireland started to figure out their model, and it really started to come into fruition in the seventies and really took root in the eighties and nineties. Mm. Uh, and as you say, it's still going today. Uh, just a couple more questions, Stephen. While we have you, the the next one yep. is: uh, Are you optimistic? Everything based on everything you know about Atlantic Canada and the work that you've done and the interactions you've had with businesses and communities and politicians, are you optimistic? or pessimistic about the future in Atlantic Canada? That's a good question. I'd have to say I'm, I'm, I'm a realist and here's, here's why. Um, I think there is tremendous potential in Atlantic Canada. Uh, you know, it's people, there are great people there. We've got some great organizations, great companies. Uh, if Atlantic Canada adopts a pro-growth environment, and gets everybody on board, it will be successful. It will attract immigrants. It will attract companies that will bring jobs. You'll see the startup community. You'll see immigrant entrepreneurs. You'll see the world look to Atlantic Canada, especially with this pandemic, and saying, you know what? Hey, this is a pretty good place to live if I can if I can find a job. That's that's the one side of it. If they if Atlantic Canada doesn't, then it could it could very well become a retirement community. It's aging faster. Um, you know, we know that there's going to be challenges on equalization. Uh, we're going to have a succession uh, challenge. We need people in there. We already you already see the the challenge with some people and and not taking some of the jobs that are available today. So if we don't focus on immigration and attracting new investment, then we're going to be a retirement community. And I mean that in all sincerity because I really do believe. It's great potential, but 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 you know we've got to we've got to take get some swagger. I mean, you know, you know, I lived in Halifax and Fredericton. <laughs> I'm so fortunate, and I live in Toronto, which is a great city. Um, but the two places in McLean's named one and two are amazing places and with great potential. But it comes down to one thing: if you're not pro growth, you're going backwards. I'm a little worried that it's not a binary choice. And what I mean by that is if we take door number two and we become a big retirement community, I'm not sure how we fund that properly or sustainably. You can't. You're not going to. I mean, you know, it's we're getting older in, in Atlantic Canada. We're getting older quicker. And this retirement bulge is coming. And if, you know, if, if you're attracting people that want to move from Toronto or someplace, into Atlanta, Canada, and retire, 
and now start to be a burden on the healthcare system. What you want to get is that 30 year old starting a family that goes and starts his business or works from home or moves there with an IBM of the world, gets involved in cybersecurity, makes 150K, pays a lot of taxes. That's what you want. So uh, I, I want to end with asking you what you're up to these days. I, I um, was very happy when I heard you were you took over the head of Toronto Global, but I guess I'd like you to tell us, tell the audience a little bit about what that organization is, who funds it, what are you trying to do, and uh, uh, what are you basically up to today? Yeah, so again, as I mentioned earlier, I moved to Toronto in the middle of a pandemic, Um and so I've been living in my apartment condo, uh, spending my life on Zoom, which is what the world does. And, and I'm fine. And my wife is still in Fredericton, by the way. Um, but my son just moved here uh, a few weeks ago, which is great. And I have another son out west. Um, so Toronto Global is the investment attraction arm for the region, which represents 24 municipalities. We're funded by, um, uh, by the federal government, the provincial government, and 24 municipalities and our job is to you know drive business growth uh in toronto um you know it's it's uh it's it's what i like to do and, and i've done it again 20 years in nova scotia and new Brunswick, and i love every minute of it and i love what i do here i've got a great team um and it's uh you know lots of similarities some differences um you know economic development is a big crowded space and it's no different here uh, you know, I think a big advantage is, you know, I'm in Toronto and Toronto is anywhere in the world, you know, people are going to know Toronto. Um, you don't have to sort of talk about the city, um, but it's a great, you know, it's a great city. I talked about how I loved Halifax. I love Fredericton. You know, I've been really lucky and I love Bermuda. Like I've been really lucky to really enjoy the places I've, I've been. Uh, and I, and I like Toronto. It's a great, uh, vibrant city. Uh, it's got a lot to offer. You know, it's um, it's expensive, uh, and you know, people are concerned about the housing. But Toronto was the fastest growing city in North America prior to the pandemic. There were more cranes here than you know Boston, New York, Seattle combined. So it's you know it's a busy city. City once we get through this pandemic, you know, it will be a thriving city again. So you think it's going to surge back because there has been a lot of discussion about people moving out of Toronto, not just to Atlantic Canada, but to other smaller areas in Ontario. And I'm not sure the data really isn't showing that yet in a, in a large scale, but it, it might in the future. I'm not sure. But are you concerned that there's going to be this big exodus as a result of the no, pandemic? Not at, all. not at all. No. I mean, I think in the last year there were 50,000 people who moved out. Um, but don't forget um we've we've attracted or brought in 120,000 immigrants a year every year and and if Canada's going to attract 400,000 which is what they say 200,000 will go to Toronto there are 247 mid to high rise buildings under construction in Toronto 26 office towers and none of them are holding back so someone's someone knows something <laughs> so i'm not worried about about uh, Toronto being, um, you know, one of the leading cities in the world. And I think Canada has an opportunity coming out of this pandemic. Uh, the U.S. is is on fire now, 6.5% growth in the last quarter. A lot of money being spent. We have an opportunity, but also a challenge. We have an opportunity to, to you know, ride some of those coattails. And that's what I would be looking at in Brunswick and Nova Scotia these days is where's the supply chain? We have to be conscious of two things. One, the Buy America talk from President Biden and the immigration talk. Like we've really taken advantage, Canada has in the last five years, of Trump and this anti-immigration play and HB1 visas. Biden is really opening up the visas. So a lot of companies, a lot of people around the world that couldn't get into the U.S. look to Canada. That may change. So we have to really be conscious of that. But I'm optimistic for the country uh, coming out of this pandemic. Uh, I'm, I'm already, like, we're already seeing some signs now of increased activity. So I'm optimistic. It's, it's the world has changed. David, as you know, like, it, we're, we're not going back to normal. 
you know, like, you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a different world. Um, it's not all work from home, mind you. I mean, you got to be careful about that. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a hybrid model going forward. Now, it's a lesson I tell the cities down here that Toronto, for every one person that leaves out the back door, they have three coming in the front door. So as long as you have that many coming in for the everyone you leave, you're not that concerned about the people uh, leaving out the back door. So, uh, Stephen Lund, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Insights podcast this week. Well, David, thank you. And uh, again, as I said earlier, uh, I think the stuff that you're doing, you and Dawn and, and others around, you know, getting the word out, the positive word of some great things happening in Atlanta, Canada, uh, is really critical at this time. And I think it will be critical as we come out of this pandemic to tell the world that some really cool things are happening. So um, kudos to you and uh, keep up the good work. Well, we wish you all the best in Toronto that there's there's a the bottom line is as goes Toronto, so goes Canada. And so everybody wishes Toronto the best and that it will thrive. And then uh, that doesn't mean the rest of the country can't thrive as well. So thank you again. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the fifth episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. Now we care about what you think. So please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.